Hosea 1. It gives us the plot of the book. So around 700 BC, this is a time of relative prosperity in uh, the Old Testament, Israel's times. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. Hosea is a prophet, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Now, if you go home and read this book on your own, you've got to know it's a little confusing. Um, it's a bit like Russian literature. The, the names of the characters seem to change, and they're given different names in different characters. And in, and in this story, in this prophecy, the, the, there are two kingdoms of Israel. There are the 12 tribes. The 10 tribes form the northern kingdom, and they are called Israel uh, or Ephraim in this, in this book. So interchangeably, they'll talk about Israel or about Ephraim, and then the southern tribes are called Judah, just to confuse you, and it's the two tribes of the south who last. This is addressed essentially to the ten tribes of the northern kingdom just you'll otherwise you'll be like huh israel ephraim who are those it's the same the ten tribes are up in the north right and here's the plot line it's a simple plot when the lord began to speak through hosea the lord said to him go marry a promiscuous woman uh, possibly as we'll see uh, a prostitute and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So this is the plot. God says, I, Hosea, you're a prophet of mine, and uh, I've got a job for you to do. I want you to teach my people in the northern part of the kingdom... And throughout history, as they read this story, I want to teach them uh, a lesson about their own unfaithfulness to God and God's never-ending faithfulness to them. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm not just going to ask you to talk about it. I'm going to ask you to live this out in front of them. I'm going to ask you to choose... Uh, a woman who has been unfaithful, has worked as a prostitute, who will be unfaithful to you in the future, and you've got to go into this with your eyes open, and you've got to marry her. And then he says, uh, so she has a, so you're going to marry, um, he marries Goma, and she has a son. So this is, a, this is a, if any of you have ever wondered, uh, maybe, do you remember, did, you, did you ever pray and say, Lord, will you just show me who I should marry? <laughs> you want to be careful about that prayer, right? Uh, so here we go. This is a match made in heaven, right? <laughs> then the Lord said to Hosea, now we have a naming ceremony made in heaven. Uh, he said, call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. He's saying even the names of your kids are going to be names of judgment against you. It would be like God talking to my mum, post-Holocaust Jewish family, and saying, what I want you to do is name your son Auschwitz. Oh, are you kidding me? Uh, so then Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and then the Lord said to Isaiah, call her Lo Ruhamah, which means... Not loved. 
For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, the southern kingdom, not, not the north, the south. And I will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. And after she'd weaned low Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. And, you know, this is good news. And then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I'm not your God. It's a little rough, isn't it? I mean, it's interesting. This hadn't occurred to me, but when Margot and I were talking about this uh, this morning, she goes, those poor children. <laughs> Imagine growing up, uh, you know, um, what's your name? Not loved. Like, there'd be some serious self-esteem issues there, right? This is a challenge uh, around God's character, isn't it? A God who is loving, who can, who can act in judgment on his faithless people, but still be faithful to them. And how do we all work that out? Uh, and so here's the first point I want to make that is really significant. Uh, God asks God asks us to do hard things sometimes, right? I mean this is this is his prophet Hosea. And and he's asked to do something that is extraordinarily hard. And that is very confronting, isn't it? It is to me, because mostly we think that God loves us, and because he loves us, he only wants what's best for us, and what is best for us is an easy, comfortable life. We kind of think that God, if he is all-loving and all-powerful, owes us a life where we have minimal disruption to our well-being, where we go through a life of essential comfort, we grow old and we die in the presence of our kids and our grandkids uh, as we slip off to sleep in a, in a comfortable old-age home somewhere surrounded by those we love. We think that's what it is to be a Christian. And, you know, uh, sometimes we, we sell that we, as the product of Christianity. You know, you've tried everything else and your life's still a mess. Come to Jesus and he will fix your life. He will heal you. And, and you know what? That's true, isn't it? Like it's not untrue that if we come to Jesus, he will heal us and he will bless us and he will give us a good life. The Bible's full of that, but it's also true, isn't it, that God can ask us to do hard things. Now, um, again, the hard things that he asks us to do are things that we might not understand. We might not understand at all. And they may seem utterly incomprehensible to us. But that's not a sign that God is evil or bad or has abandoned us. The fact that I don't understand everything about God doesn't mean that God's not good. All it means is what? I don't understand everything about God. And, and that's very humbling. And, and I, there's a little bit in me that says, I should understand everything about God. I should know. 
And I, but of course, it, no relationship works like that. I, I, I don't understand everything about anyone. And actually, the real driver behind wanting to understand everything about God is wanting to actually control God and make sure we can organize God to give us everything we need. Have you seen the movie The Stepford Wives? So when you... It's not... Uh, it's, yeah bunch of blokes who want to control their wives and know everything about their wives, and they basically turn them into robots. We know in any relationship, the very essence of the relationship is the, there is an element of unknowability and uncontrollability and otherness in the other. That's what makes it a relationship. Uh, and and if, if I knew everything about God, all that would really mean would be that what I was relating to was really a projection of my own needs, not the God who is there. Like if you think you know everything about your spouse, what you're really relating to is a projection of your own needs. You're not actually really relating to, a, to another person because let me tell you, there's layers and levels and depths in your spouse or who, that, that you won't know and you, you will never know because they're other and it's the same with God. So God asks, us to, asks Jose to do really hard things. Um, at this marriage made in heaven, three kids, um, uh, marries a prostitute. This prostitute um, goes into financial ruin. It gets worse in chapter 3 of Hosea. She goes into debt. He's got to buy her out. He's got to uh, redeem her out of debt slavery. And, uh, and he's got to live with her. And he's got to do all of this as a man of God, as a prophet, in a shame honor culture. You know? You're a godly man. You're a prophet, but you're married to somebody who has publicly shamed and dishonored you. This is a culture where what was the common punishment for women caught in adultery? They'd stone them. So don't stone her. Marry her. Love her. Love her. Forgive her. Carry in your own being, dear Hosea, her shame, her dishonor. God asks us to do hard things, doesn't he? Doesn't he? What What are some hard things that God might ask us to do? Pretend it's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> what are some hard things that God asks, might ask us today as followers, as his followers to do in this world? Forgive. Well, let's, let's, why is that hard? <laughs> oh, well, you, everyone, why is forgiveness hard? You've got to be humble. It doesn't come naturally. I, I, you got, you got to know your own sin, face up to your own baggage. Yeah. That's it, hey. I think of all the... Cha- when I th- it's interesting you jump to that because that's where my mind went. When I read Jesus' teaching and when I think of the things he asks us to do that are so counter to our instinct... 
when Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, when he says we're to forgive those who sin against us 70 times 7, that is so counter to every fiber of our being that is wired up to protect our honor, to attack our enemies, to protect ourselves. And it's what Hosea is asked to do. Forgive this woman who has publicly shamed and dishonored you and broken your heart. And you're exactly right. It's, it's so hard because it means we've got to own um, our own baggage. So I think, I think for forgiveness to really work is, is extremely difficult because there's a, there's a very painful, hard thing to do, and that is to see ourselves and others as they really are. Right? Forgiveness sits on top of truth. And my observation of myself and of the human heart is we don't much like the truth. So um, I found it over many years extremely hard to forgive my mum. Do you know why? Because it was too painful for me to see the way my mum had actually sinned against me and let me down. So if I don't see that, well, then I don't have to forgive her. <laughs> I didn't know that, but that's the case. So then, then there's actually no reconciliation possible. So we minimize people's sin. We don't see it. And then, of course, um, if I've got to start forgiving you, this is the thing that Jesus is teaching, and I see I have to see myself as I really am. Boy, and isn't that hard? It's the... Uh, metaphysical or spiritual equivalent of going into a change room to try on some new swimwear at the end of winter with, with mirrors all around you. <laughs> and you see yourself as others see you and you go, ah! It's hard. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to see ourselves as we are. And of course, you know what's so hard? Um, seeing ourselves as we are, there is an enormously, in this book of Hosea, an enormously unflattering description of uh, human behavior towards God. And, and what is that? What do you, why do you think What's the essence of human sin that this whole enacted parable of Gomer and Hosea is meant to illustrate about? That the essence of our failings, what is it? Not, not needing God? Yes. And even worse than that, pride? Self. So if, if Hosea stands in the place of God, who does Gomer stand in the place of? The adulterous, promiscuous, unfaithful spouse. Who does she represent in this parable? God's people. Oh. So what God is saying, the hard thing that you and I have to grapple with if we're going to forgive others and live as his people is we have to say, actually, 
the essence of idolatry of sin is breaking God's heart by being spiritually adulterous. That's it. It's pretty messy, right? Any time, and you see, this is it. So the Bible, right the way through, says, uh, any time you and I love any, any time we we love anything as much as we love God, we're giving our heart to other things, and uh, the Bible says that's that's spiritual adultery. That's violating our relationship with God. That's breaking his heart. That's why God set up this task for Hosea to do, because he said, I want Israel to see graphically lived out how, how destructive and awful their sin is. Ah, cheapest. Now, in, in a group this size, here's my guess. We have all, to some degree, experienced profound relational betrayal. Here's my other assumption. We have all, in a group this size, to some degree, experienced being the profound relational betrayer. Now, it may be uh, literally adultery in your marriage. It may be that your partner has actually violated your marriage by committing adultery. And I can't begin to imagine the hurt and the pain. Well, actually, I can't because I saw that in my own family of origin. I saw the devastation that it wreaks. Maybe you're the one. Maybe you're the one who's been unfaithful. You know, let's not pretend it doesn't happen. The hard thing God asks us to do is to live in the truth and explore and examine exactly who we are. And if we're to build healthy relationships with God or with each other, we can't pretend about the mess. There's an approach to family relationships, to relationships called attachment theory. Some of you may have you've heard me reference it before. And there's a woman who's pioneered uh, a way of working in attachment theory with families and couples called Sue Johnson. And she's a, a fantastic English person, lives in Canada now. She's a, a pioneer of this approach. And she's developed an approach called emotionally focused therapy. And I listened to a podcast of Sue talk about this. And it was incredibly profound. And here's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what she talked about. The, the, the interviewer said to her, but if somebody's had an affair... Do they really need to tell their spouse? Good question. So it's a question of truth, right? And this is what Sue said. She said, uh, there are therapists who will say, if it, if it was in the past and it doesn't affect them, then don't bring it up. Just build a better future. And Sue said, I can help people do that. We can build a great, big, beautiful home. The problem is undisclosed adultery or affairs or betrayal are like building a home with a ticking bomb sitting in the basement. This is North America, okay? Big basement, cellar. In the subfloor space of your house, 
you've got a great big ticking bomb and you never know when it's going to go off, but it's there and one party knows it's there. It's ticking away. So you can work with your therapist and you can build a beautiful big house, but you've got a bomb that is waiting to go off and you never know when it's going to go off. And so Sue said, I'll never do that with a client because you've got to live in the truth. That's terrifying truth. That's a hard thing. Now, let me tell you, that applies to us and God. Why? To the extent that we are not prepared to acknowledge the depth of our own brokenness and selfishness and spiritual adultery, the giving of our hearts to other things, to money and to status and to power, to control. If we, if we don't have one of those oh my God moments where I look at this ticking bomb in the basement, I'm never going to have the kind of intimacy and closeness with God that is possible if I confess and I do this hard thing. So you go, how do I get the power to do the hard thing like that? Well, here's the thing. The second point, and you'll be pleased to know this is a two-point sermon. With 25 sub-points. God never asks us to do anything that he has not done himself. God does hard things. That's it. That's the whole point of this book of Hosea, to teach God's people that though they are faithless and adulterous, their God will still accept them and forgive them. How do I get the power to do the hard things? Well, God, the Bible is so clear. God does not sit emotionally uninvolved removed from our everyday experience, he comes into the world and for thousands of years makes himself vulnerable and available to people who consistently reject him. He does that. In the same way that Gomer had to carry the sh- uh, Hosea had to carry the shame of Gomer's betrayal of him, absorb that, live that, So God carries the shame of our betrayal of him. Where do we see this most clearly? In this extraordinary act of faithful, vulnerable, healing love, God comes in one final, climactic, last bid for connection and says, I'm so committed to you that I will come as a as a person, as a human, in my son Jesus, and I will come and live for you, and I will make myself utterly vulnerable to you. And what did we do to him? What did we do to him? We preferred religion. We preferred power. We preferred comfort. And we crucified him. When Jesus goes to the cross, he is the only truly innocent spouse, the only truly innocent person. This is what it says in Ephesians 5. If you want to know, if you, this, this parable, this, this metaphor of God as our spouse and us as the, the bride, as the, this is woven right through Scripture, and, and Ephesians 5 brings it home and says this. This is, this is what God has done for us. You know, He is uh, Christ, loved the church, gave himself up for her, 
Uh, and in the same way, in the very same way, and this, this applies to marriage, but it's actually to all of life, he says, we've got to love others and we've got to live in the way of Jesus. This is a profound mystery, talking about Christ and the church. So here's what you need to know. The hard thing God has done is he climbed a hill and he was nailed to a cross and he chose to stay on that cross because of our unfaithfulness to him. What kept Jesus on the cross was not the nails. It was his love for us. It was an utterly faithful God saying, I will absorb into my own being the shame, the dishonor, the disgrace, the judgment, the suffering that is wreaked on this world by broken relationships, by unfaithfulness, by spiritual adultery and literal adultery and every other form of sin. Jesus, stripped naked, hangs on the cross and he says, I'm there for the very people who have done this to me. there for me. So where do I get the power to do the hard thing that I've got to do to look at who I really am and forgive people who have sinned profoundly, deeply against me? Where I get the power is I look at Jesus and I go, if he did that for me, who am I ever not to do that for anyone else? That's the power. That's the power of Christianity, of Jesus Christ, of the gospel, to break cycles and patterns of retaliation and retribution and violence. That's the power of Jesus to heal, because he starts by healing me. And if he would forgive me, and if he would forgive you, who am I? Who are you not to forgive even those who have betrayed us so deeply? Now, that is not to say that you need to stay in a relationship of violence, just be very clear, okay? But it is to say that because God has done this hard thing, there is grace for us, forgiveness. So we should stop, confess our sin, and beg God to give us the grace to forgive and then commit to living in the way of Jesus like this. Be peacemakers, reconcilers. And then there's another whole thing about reconciliation and what this actually looks like. Because reconciliation, the healing requires repentance and forgiveness. We'll talk about that another time. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, Have mercy on us. Strip away our pretense that we're largely okay. Show us this morning 
the state of our hearts, our spiritual adultery, and show us this morning how loved we are and how no matter what we have done, like Hosea accepting Goma, like you accepting your people Israel, like you dying on the cross for us, we find in you this morning nothing but full and free forgiveness. If we will but dare to ask and dare to acknowledge our need of it. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for any, any of us who live even this morning in, the, in a web of broken relationships, maybe marriages that have been torn apart by unfaithfulness, Maybe where we live with the pain of our parents' betrayal of us. Maybe business partners. Maybe friends. Maybe family. We pray wherever there are broken relationships that you will make us peacemakers who will do the hard thing of forgiveness and seeking reconciliation because that is what you have done for us, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to see. <laughs> I feel speechless.